Um, so this morning we're going to be looking at um, the lesson, some lessons that we can get from the reign of King Josiah. And does anyone know anything about Josiah? Has anyone heard anything? And, uh, you know, the, the time that he lived, we, I mean, obviously we are in uh, quite a different political climate, right? Um, our social, uh, the world around us, everything is a lot different. So um, it's kind of like, you know, what does this story have to offer us today? Um, we find ourselves in a different culture, um, but hopefully we'll see that there's a lot that we can learn and apply from this passage in Scripture um, because although we may live in a different time and place, I think we find ourselves in actually a very similar situation to that of King Josiah. You see, as early as three generations before him, the people of God, they enjoyed a time of blessing. They enjoyed spiritual prosperity in the land of Judah, the nation. They worshipped God. They would celebrate Passover together um, in accordance to God's law on a yearly basis. And that was all under his great-grandfather, King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a godly leader. He did what was right and good and faithful and true uh, in the eyes of God. So as a result, the people and the kingdom, they, they flourished, right? They followed the Lord. They observed God's law. And they sought to live in obedience to his commands. So that right there, great-grandpa Hezekiah. But just three generations later, by the time of Josiah, all that's changed. The word of God has literally been lost. God's, God no longer held a, a place of centrality, of, uh, of authority. His word wasn't respected. It wasn't known. People didn't adhere to it. They had turned away from the one true God and worshipped idols made of, of wood and stone. Sin began to run rampant in the land. There, there no longer remained a fear of the Lord. The leaders of the land were corrupt and ungodly. The Bible says that their last leader actually did more and more evil in the eyes of God. The nation was in need of revival and restoration. And I say all this to say, I think we find ourselves kind of in that similar situation, yeah. right? Do we not live in a nation that only a few generations ago, for the most part, worshiped the Lord? There was a, a Gallup survey that was done. I kind of looked at the information, but it's found that 73% of Americans were members of a church in 1937. Now, that, that doesn't mean that they all followed God, right? They weren't all Christians, but 73% of Americans in 1937 considered themselves part of a church. That peaked at 76% shortly after World War II, uh, trended down slightward or slightly uh, to 70% by the year 20 2000. But since then, it's been on a very sharp decline and it reached 47% in 2020. And that's pre-COVID, right? Since then, it's gone, gotten even worse, right? Less and less people nowadays are going to church. Our nation used to be predominantly Christian. The word of God was respected. It wasn't unusual for people that you knew to be going to church on a Sunday. But here we are, a few, just, just 20 years later, and all that's changed. Here, California, 2023, it seems like the word of God has all but been lost, right? Not just in places outside of church, but actually, I would argue, in many churches as well, the word of God has been lost. We've heard from uh, several people that come here um, at Freedom Church that it took kind of a long time to find a church that actually preached the word of God, and I think that's a sad thing. 
right? Because I don't know what preachers are doing, what churches are doing, if they're not preaching God's word. And, and it shouldn't surprise us that if God's wor word is lost in many churches, that it would be lost in our nation as a whole, right? I think that it's kind of led to a turning away from God and from his word, and sin is running rampant. It's getting worse by the day, and, and, and it's, uh, it seems that it's just exponentially doing that. As I was preparing for my sermon, I, I was thinking, you know, how far we've gone just by uh, looking at the shows that my kids watch, right? Uh, we used to grow up, and you could just put on kids, like a kid's channel, and it was fine. But um, now we kind of have to be careful and filter these shows because more and more, uh, they're exposing our kids to sin, trying to desensitize us to this new normal. You know, I remember growing up with Sesame Street, it's probably one of like the most innocent shows that you would think of, right? Uh, it, uh, it's been on TV for the last 50 plus years, but in the last several years, they've had several episodes featuring, you know, LGBTQ activists, drag queens, uh, rappers that live just terrible lifestyles, uh, all these kind of people that have like a really bad, uh, uh, can have a bad influence. Sesame Street's not safe anymore. I think we live in dark times. I'm in my 30s, and, you know, if you ask the youth, I'm old. Um, but even in my 32 trips around the sun, I've seen our nation going further and further from God. I, I say all that to say that the context that we find ourselves, it, it's not very different from the text in which King Josiah found himself. And we can learn some valuable lessons from his reign that hopefully we can apply to our lives. So... Uh, the story of King Josiah, it's found in two places in Scripture, 2 Kings 22, 23, and then 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. So uh, we'll jump back and forth a little bit, but we're going to mostly focus on Chronicles as that kind of gives a more um, full picture. So I'm going to just pray real fast. I'm feeling a little nervous. So um, God, I pray that you would just use me this morning. Lord, that you would uh, speak to us, God, this word that you put on my heart, that you challenged me with, Lord, that... You would anoint my lips, God, to, to speak your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears, Lord, that we would have the ears to hear what you are saying to us. Lord, that we would, would be willing to listen. God, that, that sinners would be saved and saints would be sanctified. Lord, that we would become more like you. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. So I've kind of given a little general context to the chapter, but um, I'll give a few more details before we really jump as we know, Josiah, he's the king in the land of Judah. Um, at this point in Israel's history, they've kind of been divided into two nations. There's the northern kingdom of Israel. There's the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, and by the time of Josiah, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been judged. God sent the Assyrians in. They took over. Uh, they took a lot of the, the Israelites to exile. And they kind of occupied the land now. Um, and by the time of Josiah, their power, it's been a long time, and their power was starting to weaken their influence, so Josiah has a little bit of influence over Israel, not just Judah where he's at. Um, Josiah, his great-grandfather was a good king, but his grandfather was King Manasseh. Uh, Manasseh was king uh, for 55 years, and I mean, honestly, this guy was a train wreck of a king, right? He rejected God's word, he worshipped idols, he set up altars to Baal and to false gods in the temple. He rejected uh, uh, all, everything. All, all throughout the land, he set up all these wicked things, right? 
he was wicked. He even actually burned several of his sons alive as sacrifice to some of these gods. Um, after Manasseh came his son Amon, and it says Amon walked in the way of his father. And it even says that he, he incurred guilt more and more. So, so the nation as a whole, it's just snowballing, right? Sin is flourishing in the land. Idolatry was everywhere. And after two years with King Amon, uh, he's assassinated by a little coup uh, of his own people. And then those people were then killed by other people in the country who then make Josiah an eight-year-old king. So we've had two evil kings. The last king was assassinated. The people are following idols. They want nothing to do with God. They witnessed the northern kingdom of Israel uh, experience God's judgment, be led into exile. And now in the middle of all this, we have a young boy who becomes king. And, And remember, the word of God has been lost over the last few generations. So today for the sermon, I'm going to really focus in on verses 8 through 33. Um, But I I do want to make a few comments on the introductory verses in verse 1 through 7. Um, So verse 2, it says that he, Josiah, did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn to the right or the left. We see something here about uh, the power of one's legacy. Josiah, he, he didn't have access to a copy of God's word like we do. Uh, he, he didn't have um, the God's law to kind of teach him, you know, what was right, what was wrong. Um, but I think he likely heard some stories about David and of his faithfulness to God and his, you know, exemplary kingship. He learned how to be a good king from his great, 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 great grandfather, David. This tells us that our faithfulness to God in this generation can have ripple effects for years and years to come, right? Our, our faithfulness to God in this life could have, have an effect not only on our children or, or our grandchildren, but it can have an effect on your great, great, great. For Josiah to David, I think it was 14 greats. So we need, but we need to steward that opportunity well. Another interesting point to make here is that while it says of other kings like Hezekiah and and Joash that they walked in the ways of David their father, of no other king does it say that they did not turn to the right or to the left. It's only said of Josiah. So he's a a, a very upstanding, a very upright, godly king. In verse 3 it says, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father, David. Now here I think there's a good lesson for us to apply, right? Youth, even children, uh, that the time to seek God is now, right? We, we don't need to put it off and think, oh, you know, I'm young, whatever. I, I can I have time to worry about that later. Uh, you know, I'm just going to try and live my life. I'm going to try and enjoy my life. No, we need to not put it off. We need to do it now. The scripture, it, it makes a point of saying that you know, he began seeking the Lord when he was just a boy. And, and the process uh, of seeking God is a very long process. He begins seeking when he was 16, and it wasn't until four years later that he decides to cleanse the temple of pagan worship and idolatry. And then it's not till six years after that that he finds a copy of God's word and is convicted of sin and repents. This tells us, you know, that sometimes when we're seeking the Lord for something, maybe it's salvation or repentance, maybe it's victory over sin, 
Maybe it's an answer to prayer, you know, someone, a relative that you're praying for, something to do with your growth in Christ, whatever it is, it's not going to be a short process, right? It's not necessarily um, something that we can pray for just once and expect God to just do it. You know, it's like, oh, Jesus, I pray for this. If it doesn't happen, eh, call it. You know, it, it's, it's supposed to be an ongoing process. We're supposed to seek him. Josiah took 10 years before he found a copy of God's word and repented. So the story we're focusing on, again, verses 8 to 33, um, I'm organizing it. I kind of broke it down into five points, five little lessons or things that we can observe. And the first thing is this, that we see the power of God's word. The power of God's word, it's relevant in, the, in this entire chapter, this whole narrative of Josiah. It's all ordered and, and, and kind of centered around uh, the rediscovery of God's word during the temple repair. Right? The, the discovery of God's word is kind of like the turning point in the story. Um, because after that, everything after that, they discovered God's word. You know, the Josiah repenting, the people serving God again. That's all because they discovered God's word. In other words, if his word wasn't discovered, none of this would happen, right? So verse 8 says this, And now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Masiah, an official of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the secretary, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So he cleansed the land of idolatry, he cleansed the temple, and now Josiah decides it's time to repair the temple. It's time to repair the house of the Lord. So he commissions this renovation project. Uh, he, he sends out men, uh, Shaphan, Masaiah, and Joah, to oversee this repair project. In verse 9, we see uh, they do a kind of a collection throughout the land to help pay for it. Uh, they, have, they give it the money to the high priest who uh, kind of stewards it and, and pays all these workmen. Um, and uh, in the verses following, uh, there's just kind of all kinds of different people listed. Um, let's see. It, it speaks of carpenters, of builders, uh, workmen. It speaks of the Levites, who are the music musicians. Uh, and in verse 13, it mentions secretaries, scribes, gatekeepers, right? All these people had all these kind of different skill sets, but they came together for one common purpose. I think that's a wonderful picture of God, uh, of unity, of God's people coming together for a common purpose, right? It, it kind of reminds me of um, when we were in Texas, we were building a new church, and you know, what we're trying to do here, hopefully, eventually, soon. Um, <laughs> but we're wanting to build, you know, a new, a new church to try, a new building to try and reach more people. So we have, you know, all these different people with different abilities, you know, you have plumbers and carpenters and painters and sheetrock or whatever, drywall <laughs> uh, people, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but yeah, there's all kinds of engineers, lawyers, you know, accountants, you need all of these different skill sets to work together, and, and that's kind of a, a great picture of unity that God wants for us, and another thing in verse 12, it says, uh, the men did the work faithfully. And I think that's uh, kind of cool that God decides to put this in Scripture, that little line. He makes just a, a little note that, uh, you know, those who worked on the town did so faithfully on the repairs. He acknowledges and commends them for working hard and renovating the temple. 
verse 14 through 15, while these uh, renovations are ongoing, it says, When they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest brought the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. So uh, this is kind of interesting because, as I mentioned earlier, it indicates that God's word was lost. Right? The, the word of God, this was the first time that Josiah even comes across it. And actually, even the high priest, this is the first time he comes into contact with the law. We're not too sure, but perhaps the kings that came before Josiah, um, maybe they tried to get rid of God's word, you know, burning scrolls or copies, and someone maybe hid it in the temple. Whatever the case was, God's word is finally found. The word of God is rediscovered, and the interesting thing to me is that the temple, it was cleansed six years ago, right? So presumably over the last six years that uh, they kind of cleansed out, cleansed out all the other idols that people would have been gathering together to try and worship God. Uh, Josiah was seeking after the Lord for six years, but he didn't have a copy of God's word. So what on earth was happening in that corporate worship in that temple? They didn't have God's word. I'd say perhaps it's not very different than what goes around in a lot of churches today. Right? Maybe someone gets up and they tell uh, an encouraging word. They tell some stories. They tell some jokes. Uh, maybe they give you a couple morals. But God's word was not proclaimed. It was not read from. And people left each worship service. Maybe they felt a little bit warm inside, a little warm fuzzies. But there was no repentance. There was no life change. There was no salvation. There was no heart transformation. That's how bad things were. God's law was not just disregarded. It was unknown. It was lost up until this point. And so no wonder sin's running rampant, right? Yeah. Josiah had to go everywhere to cleanse out the land of these idols where God's word is not read or proclaimed or even known, there will be sin. Plain and simple. God's word is the power to fight sin and, and to convict the sinner. And that means that where his word is unknown, sin is going to run rampant because there's no conviction. There'll be no repentance and it'll spiral. Verse 16 and 17 Shaphan, he updates King Josiah about the repairs on ongoing, gives him instruction um, that he'd been given. Verse 18, he mentions that Hilkiah uh, had found a book, and at the end, it says this, um, and Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king, and then Josiah, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes, and he wasn't like hulking out. This was, this was an act of repentance, right? He, he was in, in sorrow. It wasn't just like, I don't know, never mind. But, but the amazing thing to me here is that all Shaphan did right here, it, he read from it. All he did was he read from the book. He didn't preach it. He didn't explain it. He didn't like exposit it and kind of compare it. He didn't do any of that. He read from it and Josiah's conviction, it's instant and he repents. Again, I think there's some lessons that we can learn from this right? It's obvious, but I think it's worth saying that it wasn't the newly renovated temple that caused Josiah to repent and the people of Judah to turn back to God. It wasn't the, the new patio out front, even though it's a good thing. It was, it was the reading and the proclaiming 
of God's word. So while the uh, renovation project is good and it's exciting and and, uh, it's a positive thing, we must never forget or lose sight of the fact that the main ministry of the church will and should always be the ministry of God's word. It's a discipleship of God's people uh, uh, through the preaching and the teaching of his truth. Repentance and revival will not happen in people's lives and in this nation apart from the proclamation of God's word. So here we are, 21st century America, and we find ourselves in a similar situation to Judah. The word of God may not literally be lost. I mean, as a matter of fact, it's kind of the opposite. I think we have more access to God's word than any generation that's come before us, right? But in so many places, it's functionally lost. And our culture is spiraling out of control because God's word is disregarded. It's unknown by masses and not just the people in the world, but by people in the church too. By Christians. So many Christians don't know their Bible. They're biblically illiterate because they don't read it. But again, like I said, we have more access to God's word than anyone before us. Many of us, we have maybe a couple hard copies of Bible sitting at our home around a bookshelf. Uh, we have, you know, phones that we can download several different Bible apps on. We have more access to the God's word, but the question I have for you guys this morning is, are you reading it? Are you spending time in God's word each and every day? Are you using it to bring about repentance and change in your life to fight sin? Are you using it to grow in your walk in the Lord? How about this? Are you prioritizing Sunday worship so that you can hear God's word preached, read, and sung, or is your Bible lost in your life like it was in Judah? Does it have no bearing on your life? We have more access to God's word than any generation before, and we will be held accountable for that opportunity and how we steward it. God's word is power. We see that in this text. It's the power to convict, to save, to change lives, to fight sin, to bring about restoration and revival. The Bible says God's word is our daily bread. It's his truth, so as his people, we must read it and feed on it and know it. But more than that, we need to, like James 1.22 says, we need to do what it says. We need to respond to it. That brings me to point number two, the urgency of repentance. Notice here, Josiah repents immediately upon hearing the word of the law read. It says, when the king heard the words of the law He tore his clothes. There was no delay. He didn't put it off. He didn't wait for some other time. He experienced conviction of sin. And instead of suppressing that, he responds to it immediately. He humbles himself. He repents. He even weeps because he's grieved over his sin and the sin of his people. Verse 27, it says this, Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes, wept before me, I have indeed heard you. God hears us. So the law is simply read. Josiah is humbled. And I believe there's, there's again, some things here. We... There's usefulness in the reading and the preaching of God's law. Some people think God's law no longer has 
a part to play in the modern Christian church, in the New Testament church, right? Because Christ came to fulfill the law. So the law must no longer play a role in our lives, but that's not true. The law has several functions, one of which, perhaps the most important, is that it reveals to us our sin. It reveals that we're unworthy sinners who fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. In other words, if we don't have the law, we don't have knowledge of our sin. When God's law is preached and sinners are convicted, they're shown how they fall short of God's glorious standard and how we need a savior. We all have sin, right? Like Pastor Colleen talked about last week, you know, sin entered the world through one man. We all have sin, but we're not all aware of it. This is what happens with King Josiah. The country, it's full of sin. The book of the law, it's read. Josiah contemplates how he's fallen short and he repents. And we see there's usefulness in the reading and the preaching of his law. And we see that there's a call to repentance and it's urgent. Josiah, he's confronted with the law of God. And what's he do? He repents immediately. I think maybe there's some of us in this room that we come here each and every week. And we're encouraged every week to turn from our sin. And put our faith in Jesus and repent. But maybe you've not fully done it. If that's you today, may today be different. May today be a day of salvation for you. Stop putting it off. There's an urgency to this message. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. I, I think we're always reminded of this by people in the news, right? There's, there's random shootings. There's celebrities that die all the time. And, and it's like there's constant tragedies. Life is fragile. One day you could be alive and doing great. Everything's going your way. You're, you're feeling good. And the next you could be gone. We don't know when our last breath will be, so why wait? Seek the Lord while he can be found. The Bible says, humble yourself like Josiah does. One commenter, uh, commentator said, humbling yourselves involves a change of an attitude from a posture of defiance toward God to submission towards God and his principles of righteousness. Humbling yourself, it, it involves going from, from being in a position against God to being in submission to him. I think that's, it's a good definition, but I also think that humbling ourselves also involves recognizing that we deserve nothing but the wrath of God, right? You and I, we deserve nothing but God's, for God's wrath to be poured out on us. Josiah, he comes to this realization, verse uh, 21, it says, inquire of the Lord for me and for those left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book which has been found for the wrath of the Lord which has been poured on us is great because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord we deserve nothing but God's wrath and yet through Jesus Christ the king of kings he took God's wrath in our place as he died on the cross for us right we deserve to have all the cross uh, all the curses come down on us but Jesus became a curse so that we wouldn't have to as he hung there and he died for us and he rose again and he commands us to repent of our sin and follow him so if not done that do it today because you don't know if you'll have tomorrow that brings me to my next point that we kind of see in this passage is the grace of salvation 
Right here we see grace of salvation after Josiah. He tears his clothes in repentance. He asks Hilkiah and several others to go inquire of the Lord for him. Uh, they go to this prophetess named Huldah. Um, this is the only place in scripture where this prophet is named uh, Huldah. Uh, there's several other prophets that were kind of around during that time. There was Jeremiah, uh, Nahum, Zephaniah, I think a couple others. But they go to this prophet named Huldah, and in verses 23 to 26, she prophesied of God's coming judgment. That it's inevitable, that God's wrath will be poured out on them, that it will be an unquenchable disaster that will come upon his people. But then we get to verse 26. Verse 26 starts with, but to the king of Judah. In so many places where you see the word but, you know that mercy and grace is going to follow, and that's exactly what happens here. Josiah, he's heard the words of condemnation and judgment. I mean, put yourself in his shoes, right? He hears, uh, since they've abandoned me and burned incense, uh, they've provoked me, my wrath will be poured out, and it will not be quenched. Josiah has this kind of conviction. He knows what they deserve. But it says, But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what you shall say to him. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says in regard to the words which you've heard. Because your heart was tender, you humbled yourself before God, and you heard his words against his place. Because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes, wept. I have heard you, declares the Lord. I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. So your eyes will not see all the evil which I'm bringing on this place and its inhabitants. So they brought back word to the king. I think what a relief Josiah must have felt when he heard these words. God promised to spare Josiah because he was willing to humble himself. In the midst of this judgment, we see grace of salvation. We see that those who truly humble themselves, who truly repent of their sin, that they, you can escape the wrath of God, but we also see that those who don't will experience the wrath of God. Right? And the Bible, it, his wrath will not be quenched. That means if we do humble ourselves and repent and trust in Jesus, that you won't suffer under God's wrath forevermore. And so if you're here this morning and you want to escape God's judgment and you need to repent of your sins... Do it. Humble yourself. Grieve over your sin like Josiah did. And flee to Christ Jesus because he's the only way we can be saved. Josiah repents. And the next thing we see is a commitment to obedience. Here Josiah makes a commitment to obedience. There's a, there's a progression, right? God's word is unleashed. It's read. Josiah hears it. He's convicted. He repents. He receives a grace of salvation. But now, in response to that wonderful mercy that he has received, he commits to God to living in obedience to him. Verse 29 through 31. It says, Then the king sent word and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord uh, with all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, Levites, all the people, from the greatest to least. And he read in their presence all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood in his place, made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commands, his testimonies, and his statutes with all of his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that are written in this book. 
Here Josiah makes a covenant after the promise of salvation. A covenant to obey God. But the first thing he does is he gathers all the people around. Right? He gathers them together and he reads them God's word. He's just experienced mercy. He's just experienced salvation. And I think he's excited about it. So what's he do? He gathers people together. Right? He shares it with whoever he can. I think it's a natural response of someone who's experienced the forgiveness of sin to want to share it with those around them, right? To want to go to El Salvador and share the good news, the grace that we can receive. They should want to share it with others so that they can be saved we can, and live in obedience to him. So here Josiah does that. And in verse 31, he makes a covenant before God to walk in his ways, keep his commands, his testimonies, everything. And the, the thing to note is that he does it first. Right? He doesn't have someone else do it. He leads by example. He makes a public commitment, a statement that he's going to follow the Lord, that he's repented, that he trusts in God, that he relies on him, and he's going to live for him the rest of his life. And remember, these are the same people that killed his dad just two years into his dad's king. I mean, not the literal people because those people were killed by other people. But they, were not, they were messy folks. Uh, they were messy people. Folks, I don't know what they're called. Uh, no, but they were. It was a messy situation, and, and but he wasn't worried about that. He wasn't worried what people thought. He wanted to make a commitment to God, and he didn't care what people thought. And and in verse thirty-two, he he makes all the people join him. He reads the whole thing, and I think it's the law of Moses, right? It's the the Pentateuch, the Torah, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I was kind of sitting there thinking, you know, that's a lot of reading. Um, so just for fun, I kind of did the math. Genesis has 32,406 words. Exodus, 25,957. Leviticus, 18,852. Numbers, 25,048. Deuteronomy has 23,008 words. Altogether, 125,271 words. The average speaker reads between 150 to 200 words a minute. So if Josiah's on the very top end of that, it would still take him ten and a half hours to read it straight with no pauses. But the people listened, probably partially because he's a king and they had to, but <laughs> they take part in this covenant, right? So what do, we learn from, what do we learn from this part of the story? The first thing is that we've been saved by the grace of God. There should be a desire within us to share it. To live in obedience to him. The person who's really been forgiven of their sins should not want to sin any longer. When we're called to follow Christ and we repent, uh, we're called to pursue a life of holiness and righteousness in him. You can't have one without the other. It's a call to observe the commands in his word. The example King Josiah shows us is that salvation must lead to sanctification. And if there's no desire in your heart to pursue obedience to Christ, there's no growth in your life. If there's no repentance over sin, if there's no victory over sin in your life, then you might have much reason to doubt your salvation. Because those that are truly saved will seek him and seek to obey him. That's why Jesus says numerous times throughout scripture, if you love me, obey my commands. And this is what Josiah vows to do. And again, Josiah, he does this publicly. He declares his faith in God, 
and his desire to follow him. And I think there's some pretty cool parallels in that to baptism, right? Baptism, it's a public declaration of faith that we believe in Jesus, that we've been saved, and that we want to follow him for the rest of your life. He saved you, so now you're going to live in obedience to him. And act of baptism, it's one of the first steps of obedience. Uh, and I say that to say that if you profess faith in Christ, but you're unwilling to be baptized, what does that say about your faith in him? I think there's a serious problem because if you're truly saved, then you should have no problem publicly declaring your love for Jesus as Josiah does here. Your desire for obedience should outweigh your fear of man. Who cares what people think? God saved you. I've been spared by God's grace. The least I can do is get up next week at the river or whenever and get dunked, right? I'm with Jesus. So Josiah, he shows our desire for obedience should outweigh our fear of man. And I think the application here is also kind of uh, for life groups that we have here at church or church membership. King Josiah, he doesn't just pursue obedience to God. He wants to do so alongside the people. So he makes them take part in this covenant that he's uh, uh, renewing with God. As Christians, we should want to pursue uh, a relationship with God and holiness alongside other believers. right? You shouldn't just have a desire for personal growth, but for growth of your brothers and sisters as well. So that's why in our life groups, and when you become a member of this church, we kind of make a covenant, um, not a literal covenant, but we do make a covenant to uh, one another, right? To watch over one another, to live at peace with one another, to bear one another's burdens, to encourage one another, to help each other seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, because we believe we cannot pursue obedience to Christ in isolation. We need each other. We cannot pursue obedience to Christ in isolation. We need each other. We need to do it in community. And that's what Josiah does here, right? So, so far we've seen, um, we've seen the power of God's word, the urgency of repentance, the grace of salvation, a commitment to obedience, and finally, we get to the conclusion of the sermon. We need a better king. Josiah was a great king. And in fact, 2 Kings 23, it says, Never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul, strength, obeyed all the laws of Moses, and there has never been a king like him since. Josiah was the greatest king Israel or Judah ever saw, but he was not good enough. The story goes on, and Josiah, uh, he does a second, more thorough cleansing of the land. He destroys idols, uh, not just in the temples, but everywhere. He burns the bones of, like, the... Uh, wicked. Uh, he, he does all this stuff. He restores the annual Passover celebration. In Second Chronicles, uh, it even says that he required everyone to worship the Lord their God. It's kind of a, a weird um, statement. It strikes me as odd. Like, Josiah made all of those who were present serve the God of their fathers. How can you make someone serve the Lord? Right? It's, I mean, if you know, then let us know, but um, <laughs> no, but Josiah here, I, I think what's happening is he uses his authority as a king to kind of put God's laws as like the, the laws for the land. But the question is, were the people, were their hearts truly changed? He, he makes people live in obedience to God's law, 
but was their obedience genuine and heartfelt, or was it simply an outward obedience and conformity to law? Were they, were they truly following the Lord, because they, not because the king commanded it, but because they wanted to, because they had a heart change? And unfortunately, we'll see here in Scripture, the answer is no. Josiah ended up reigning. He, he reigned for 31 years, and then he died just like every king before him. But how he dies is totally uh, an avoidable situation. And I think I've, I've heard so many sermons and, and teachings on Josiah before, and it's like, oh, Josiah was a good king, and it kind of just focuses on all the good that he did, but ignores the failure in the end. As a matter of fact, if you read uh, 2 Kings uh, 23, it just says, in the days of Pharaoh, Necho, uh, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria at the river Euphrates, King Josiah went to meet him, and when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo, right? So you kind of hear that, and it's like, oh, like, what did he do wrong, right? Um, and I kind of just assumed that was it, but if you look at Second Chronicles, we'll see that that's not the whole story. Chapter 35, verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, Went up to eat, uh, um, yeah, went up to wage war at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to engage him. But Necho sent messengers to him, saying, "What business do you have with me, King of Judah? I'm not coming against you today, but against the house with which I'm at war. And God, and notice it's a capital G, uh, has told me to hurry. For your own sake, stop interfering with God, who is with me, so that He does not destroy you." However, Josiah would not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight against him, nor did he listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God. But he came to wage war on the plain of Megiddo. The archers shot King Josiah. The king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out on the chariot, carried him to a second chariot, which he had, and brought him to Jerusalem, where he died and was buried in the tombs of his father. And all of Judah and Jerusalem mourned. For Josiah. But you were doing so well. Right? You were going so strong. Scripture says nothing negative about King Josiah. But in the end, he refused to listen to God. You know, I, I've heard and seen commentary that, you know, maybe he didn't know. Or it's like, oh, well, Egypt's evil. So how would he have known that that was God? But the thing is, God can and will use anyone to speak to us. If he can use a donkey, he can sure use a pharaoh, right? And even if he doubted, he could have at least consulted the priests or, or the prophets uh, to see if it was a word from God, as countless kings before him had done, but he doesn't. In the end, he fails. After all the good that he's done, we need to finish strong. After Josiah pointlessly goes to his death, Judah immediately falls back into sin and idolatry. They do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. After Josiah's death, God soon after sends Babylon and they capture Jerusalem. They burn, they destroy the temple that he just rebuilt. And God's people are led into exile. And this was an act of judgment. This was the fulfillment of that prophecy that we read earlier, right? Josiah, he may have been able to enforce a law. He may have been able to, to do that, but he couldn't change 
human heart. We may be able to turn away God's wrath for a season, but we can't do it forever. And I'm going to close with this. We're almost done. We're going to listen to Jeremiah uh, chapter 3. He writes about um, the people of Judah during the reign of King Josiah. It says, During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what fickle Israel has done? Like a wife who commits adultery, Israel has worshipped other gods on every hill and under every green tree. I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her faithless sister Judah saw this. She saw that I divorced faithless Israel because of her adultery. But that treacherous sister Judah had no fear, and now she too has left me and given herself to prostitution. Israel treated it all so lightly. She thought nothing of committing adultery by worshiping idols made of wood and stone. So now the land has been polluted. But despite all this, and here it is, her faithless sister Judah has never sincerely returned to me. She has only pretended to be sorry. I, the Lord, have spoken. As good of a king as Josiah was, remember, he didn't turn to the right or the left. Ultimately, God's people needed a better king. God's people needed a king that would not only cleanse the temple, but cleanse their hearts, right? They needed a king who would not only turn away God's wrath for a season, but for eternity. And I think we all know and we believe that Jesus is that better king. King Josiah, he tore his clothes when he heard the curses of the law read, but King Jesus, his, his flesh was torn when he became a curse for us and he bore those curses. Death was able to put an end to Josiah's reign, but it's not able to put an end to Jesus' reign. Jesus Christ, he's the only king who lived, who died, and rose again. He defeated sin and death once and for all. He did what Josiah could not do. Jesus Christ is the only king who can take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. So that we don't just outwardly obey God because that's some rules or that's what we're supposed to do, but because we genuinely want to, right? We obey God because our hearts are regenerated and king, only King Jesus can do this. So Jesus is the better king. Jesus is the greater Josiah. Jesus, he's seated on his throne right now and he continues to reign. Go ahead, stand up with me. He's sovereign over you. He's sovereign over me. And there will never come an end to his kingdom and he shall reign forevermore, right? Lord, we love you, God. We thank you, God, that you are changing us to be more like you. God, if, if there's sin that's crept into our lives, Lord, if there's, if there's temptation or whatever it is, Lord, if we've neglected your word, if we've turned away from your word, I pray that we would repent, shout, Lord, that we would turn to you, the only king who can change our lives, Lord, who can turn away God's wrath that we deserve. Lord, you are worthy of our praise. God, we, we bless you. You are worthy of it all. We love you and thank you. Amen. Oh, can I get this my air? There it's going. So, hey, listen, I, I feel like it. You know, if you're here today and you're like, I need to make a fresh commitment to God, uh, you may already be saved, but you know you've kind of been drifting away. Uh, how many of you know it's really a quick step coming back to Him? So, 
I think we need to respond to this word that uh, that Pastor Timothy shared. I don't want to be pretending. Amen. How many of you know you may fool everybody here on this earth, but we'll never fool God. So if you found that you've been drifting in any way, and you're like, God, no, I, I need to get back. I need to make sure that I'm back on track with you, whether it's a first-time commitment to the Lord or it's just a returning back to Him. You know, we, we know about the prodigal son, that God, God is always the Father with open arms welcoming me. Amen? So can I just have everybody with your head bowed for a moment? And if you say, Pastor, I want you to pray, because I, I want to pray. I want to make a step. I found myself drifting, but I want to come back and be solid with him. If that's you, just raise your hand, and then you can put it back down. And uh, I'm not going to call you up to the front. Amen. Amen. I see several hands. Thank you, Lord. Can we all just say this prayer together and let it come from your heart? I know many of you guys have heard me say it. If it's just out of our mouth, if it's just words, doesn't mean nothing. But if it's with our heart... Then, uh, then God hears that. So can we just say this? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. I know I don't deserve it, but you love me anyway. You sent your only son, Jesus, to die on that cross for me. So today, I return back to you. Lord God, wholeheartedly, following after you in Jesus mighty name amen amen